I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. On our latest podcast, we continue our rewatch of The Leftovers as we finally get to know a little bit more about Nora Durst in the episode entitled Guest. And just remember, there's no moving on. Nothing's next. Ah, Nora, I love you so much. My name is Justin Hamilton and you're hanging out with me on Big Squid. the halfway point of season one in our Leftovers rewatch where we finally get to learn a lot more about Nora and really get to see and admire the brilliance of actor Carrie Coon. I'm producing this podcast on a Tuesday and I've been up since 4.30am recording a two-hour interview with someone I very much admire, someone I'm totally into and someone who I consumed their work recently and loved it. That's all I'm going to tell you for now. Just a little tease to get the creative juices flowing. Have a think. I honestly thought this chat was going to be like half an hour with this person, but it ended up going so much longer, and I cannot tell you how wrapped I am about it. Well worth waking up before the birds have begun to stir to record. That's exciting, right? Have a guess. Come to the Facebook page. Throw your guesses out there. And for anyone who's in our private conversation page, you don't get to guess because I've already told you. See, that's what happens in our little private conversation area. We have all these little chats that the people who aren't in there don't know about. But if you want to know about it, you're welcome to join us. So maybe come in and then you could just know stuff about what's coming up on this podcast. Anyway, 
I'm very excited. I'll probably announce it next week, actually. But I'll, I'll, I'll announce it maybe next Tuesday or something like that. So uh, there'll be a very specific reason as to why. I give you a heads up so you can prepare for it. All right, let's stop talking about the future. Let's get right into this episode of The Leftovers. I have banged on about my love of Nora. I have not stopped talking about the performance by Carrie Coon. It has been years now, and this is the real first time we get to know her. We get so much of her. We've had glimpses of her. We've had little tasty moments with her, but man... This is where it all comes together. Let's dig into episode six of season one of The Leftovers entitled Guest. You can play by the rules or you can go down the rabbit hole with us. Oh, yes! You are all blind. Puppets. The department of the sudden departure is an elaborate smokescreen. I lost everything. If you were in pain, you would know there is no moving on. Someone is impersonating me. Who would want to pretend to be you? Just do it. I can't. Just wait. Do it now. We open with Nora at work. Clinical, reliable, focused. Yet as she speaks to those who have lost loved ones to the departed, as she asks the questions that the government have deemed important, now and again you can see the flicker of the pain Nora hides deep inside. That pain isn't for anyone else. Her stoicism is not only a way for her to cope, but also a barrier against the many feelings that are projected her way. Later that day, we see her sitting alone in her car, gun in her bag, watching the primary school teacher who was having the affair with her husband before he vanished along with 140 million other people that fateful day. The teacher makes eye contact. And in that moment, we not only feel the teacher's guilt, but you also start to wonder how many days has Nora been coming to this same spot, staring at her blankly. We also watch Nora carry out her rituals that help her achieve a sense of normalcy. She goes to the supermarket and buys the items she would have bought if her family was still at home. She throws out the unopened packets of cereal as if they've been emptied by her children. She replaces all of the products regardless of the need to. But on the kitchen table, we notice an oddity. A used roll of paper towels stands out. And it stands out because it's pretty much finished but it hasn't been replaced. Remember the paper towels for later. We suddenly come across a very different part of Nora's ritual, and that is when she calls a sex worker and hires them to visit her at home. When the sex worker arrives, we discover this isn't what we think it is. Nora stands in front of a mattress, slips on some Kevlar, turns on Angel of Death by Slayer, hands the sex worker her gun and says, I want you to shoot me. The sex worker is aghast, but as Nora points out, if I wanted to die, I wouldn't need you. They negotiate more money and then Nora goads the sex worker into shooting her. Nora drops back onto the mattress and the sex worker leaves, traumatised. We wait a beat. Then Nora finally breathes, back from the precipice of death, alive. The next day, Nora applies for a divorce, and when the judge queries why she'd do this, she states, My husband was having an affair with our preschool teacher. 
Nora is always honest when confronted with a question. She doesn't change her name, though. She wants to remain Nora Durst. In mythology, names have power. And whatever Nora is now, this is who she is going to remain. As she leaves the court, she bumps into Kevin Garvey, who is coming in for his own divorce. This time, she's on the back foot, impulsively invites him to go away with her to Miami, and when he states he can't because of his daughter, she replies, fuck your daughter. Mortified by her words, she leaves a very confused Kevin behind. It's really worth it to see the look on Justin Theroux's face. That whole encounter did not play out like the last few times that they bumped into each other. Nora's boss is sending her to New York for a conference about the departed. Before she goes, he points out a weird anomaly in the questions she reads out. It turns out one question, number 121, everyone that is asked the question responds with the same answer. No one else who works for the agency has a run like that. He wonders if Nora is influencing the people she questions. Of course, Nora is offended by this suggestion. Doesn't everyone know that anything. She's nothing but a professional. As soon as Nora arrives at the conference, she's surrounded by the heightened weirdness of the world. She's handed a dummy grenade at the middle of the street that is meant as a statement. But a statement about what? Conspiracy theorists push up against religious fanatics who press up against cults like the guilty remnant. This place is a synecdoche of the world at large. Inside, Nora discovers someone has taken her badge, and she has to make do with one that says, Guest. This offends Nora. Who would want to pretend to be her? It must be someone who wants to experience her pain by proxy. She searches for the person, accuses an innocent woman, who obviously did not steal the badge, and even worse, Nora offended this same woman at the conference the previous year. A salesman tries to flirt with Nora, but she's not interested, yet when she accidentally bumps into him later, she's encouraged by his entourage to skip the rest of the day and party. Upstairs in one of the hotel rooms, we discover he sells the fake bodies that give those who lost someone to the departed an actual physical shell to say goodbye to, to pour their grief into. Nora gets high and makes out with the salesman's dummy and then wakes the next day to hotel security pounding on her door. They think Nora ran amuck in the hotel last night, but Nora knows it's someone else. It's the person who stole her badge. She's pretending to be her. They eventually find the woman who is using Nora's identity to push her own beliefs about what's really going on with this mess of a world. Later, Nora finds herself in the bar talking to an author who wrote about his experiences with losing people to the departure, specifically family members. At first, Nora's keen to talk to someone who might understand her pain, but when he acts serene and claims he's found a way to move beyond the pain, Nora erupts. There's no moving on. Nothing's next. As she attempts to leave, she's approached by an older man who has been lurking around the conference. He convinces Nora to come with him and she's taken to a room where Holy Wayne sits. He offers to take her pain away and Nora responds with scepticism. Yet Holy Wayne responds with honesty. He's tired. He doesn't really care about her. He doesn't have long. He just wants to make money while he can. Yet when he looks at Nora, he reads her perfectly. Nora always responds to honesty, whether the person speaking it means it or has come to this conclusion by accident. 
He hugs Nora and she bursts into tears, her pain now at the surface. Back in Mapleton, we see the teacher with her class look around for Nora, but she's not to be found. No, this time Nora's back at home, and this time she replaces not only groceries that she needs, but also the paper towels on the kitchen bench. This isn't the last time we'll notice them. When she receives a knock at the door, Nora seems genuinely happy to see that it is Police Chief Kevin Garvey. He stumbles through a conversation and then asks her if she'd like to catch up. She responds that she would, and as he leaves, he can't help but tell her, Just so you know, I'm a fucking mess. Normally, this would scare off most people, but not Nora. She likes his honesty. It is refreshing in a world full of people not knowing what to say, specifically to her. Back at work, Nora asks her normal questions. This time she gets to question 121, which is, Do you think the departed are in a better place? The woman looks at Nora and says no. No, she doesn't think they're in a better place. This is the first time someone has responded with a no to question 121. We linger on Nora's face, impassive, yet full of thought and emotion. And then the episode ends. For those of you watching The Leftovers for the first time, this is the episode I was most excited for you to see. Not necessarily because it's the best episode, like I love it, but because now you get a real opportunity to spend a proper amount of time with Nora and therefore the incredible Carrie Coon. Nora has been teased throughout the series from the pilot uh, where we were asked to view her as an awful and unfortunate victim of The Departed. We saw the mischievous side of her when she pushed a coffee cup off the table in the cafe just to see what the reaction would be. But we also saw her at her job where she interviews people about their loved ones departing to see if they qualify for a government payout. That scene in particular gave us a hint of Nora, the woman who gets on with the job even though you can see all the emotion in such a momentary grimace or a little look in her eye. We've seen her brother cruelly reveal that her husband was having an affair before he disappeared, but we've also seen her be assertive, whip-smart, even flirty with the awkward-as-hell police chief. Even in this episode, as Nora walks out with a divorce and he walks in to make his official, she just asks him to fly to Miami with her on a whim. And it's so funny when she tells him to go fuck your daughter. And the mortification (laughs) means that she also misses his reaction. That's a weird thing to say, but you have to remember, Kevin's fucking weird too. The ritual Nora carries out with the shopping, buying the food her family would have once eaten and thrown out with being touched makes a lot of sense to us now, doesn't it? What did we all crave during those weeks of isolation during the pandemic is maybe you're actually still in the middle of isolation maybe you are doing this yourself some of us here especially in Australia are very lucky that we can talk about it in the past tense but I know that some of you are still going through it and what was it that we wanted and what was it that we gravitated towards it was it was ritual And it was the lack of ritual that left us so discombobulated. I created a schedule immediately. Walking in the morning, 
yoga with Adrienne, cooking, riding, podcast producing. I had to find ways to keep myself moving forward and try to gain some control over my tiny corner of the world, bring some shape to my life. You can't underestimate the breaking of ritual either. On a very unimportant level, I used to buy weekly comics every Wednesday for decades, like decades. And I reckon I've probably read more shit than good stuff. But the ritual of going to the store on a Wednesday or a Thursday or whatever day it happened to be, depending on the city that I lived in, was one that I was very comfortable with. And then when the pandemic kicked in and I was in isolation, the ritual was stopped and it's done. I've totally given up on those monthly titles. It's it's all over. I'll read things as graphic novels now, but I don't feel a need to head into a comic store every week. For me, buying comics, that's just a thing I did. Imagine how Nora felt with her family gone. The desire to keep something as normal as buying regular cereal for her children must have been what kept her from completely losing her mind some days. All except that one empty roll of hand towels. That was never replaced until the end of this episode. I've said it before, keep that little moment in mind. Remember earlier when Jill and Amy discussed what Nora might be up to with her gun? Remember I said that their hypothesis wasn't outlandish enough? Now you can see why. Nora has been fascinating, as she's seen as a symbol of sadness by the town she lives in, yet there have been so many signs that she's actually doing much better than anyone gives her credit for. Yet the turmoil that bristles underneath the surface of her skin hints at a depth to her sadness that no other character can truly relate to. For her to hire a sex worker to shoot her in the chest while she wears Kevlar, to me knocked out for a moment, caught between life and death, it makes you wonder if the only moment she feels truly alive is that first breath she takes after the shot as her lungs desperately scream out for oxygen. You wonder if Nora could will herself into non-existence, even for a few moments, she would take that opportunity. Who hasn't gone through a moment in their life where they've wondered what it would be like to be totally free from the world you know? I remember once walking through Amsterdam alone and realising at that precise moment, not one person in the world that I knew had any idea where I was and the weird joy and freedom I felt it was amazing it was so surreal in a way to be untethered from life knowing you can still return like that to me is kind of a lovely (laughs) and calming feeling I know some people might find that to be a little bit weird but I kind of understand the the basics of uh, of where Nora's at of course without the um without the extremities of course. I just think you can understand Nora's motivations throughout this episode. When someone steals her identity, the idea that someone would attempt to experience her life even through her name is repellent. We've already seen that she wants a divorce, but also wants to keep her name intact. What the taking of that badge represents is much more powerful than the simple act. 
Also, seeing her encounter with the woman in the toilet where we learn Nora attacked that same woman verbally the year before shows us that even though the facade seems impassive, the cracks are there and she is right on the edge. No wonder Nora and Kevin are attracted to each other. They both, in their own way, have these awful, angry, violent, aggressive compulsions. Just because she doesn't want empathy from the world doesn't mean Nora doesn't need it. Nora wants people to treat her normally, with honesty, because then that might help her get to a place she's not certain she deserves. That's why the scene with Holy Wayne is so fascinating. This guy is clearly a hustler, a shyster, but he reads her perfectly, and even if she doesn't necessarily believe he is actually taking away her pain, she gives in to his hug and embraces the moment. Regardless of whether it did anything or not, it clearly had an effect. We saw it on the senator and the pilot, and now we see this work on Nora. Sometimes you just want to believe. Sometimes you just need to believe. I also love the little subplot about everyone answering question 121 the same. Pain is real, and no matter how much you think you're hiding it, there are ways that it manifests that we can't truly understand. With her pain gone, even for the moment, now the people that Nora questions are free to give their true responses to that specific question. Are the departed in a better place? Nobody knows for certain, but they have their suspicions. These short stories, whether it is from Nora's POV or the author in the bar or the salesman believing he is doing some good to the woman answering questions at the end, give us a glimpse of the mosaic of the world that was left behind after that infamous day. Nora is my favourite character in the series. I think Carrie Coon is exceptional and I love every scene that she's in and God damn it. It's probably my favourite romance. Uh, You know, those crazy interactions with fucked up Kevin. And even though the visceral reaction to Slayer's song, Angel of Death, initially imprints itself on the mind's eye, I prefer to think of Crowded House singing Don't Dream It's Over in the hotel party scene when I think of Nora Durst in this episode. Let's get into the squid bits of this episode. Some of the protesters at the front of the conference have signs that refer to earlier conversations in the show. Tomorrow's Family Today references the cult that the FBI agent mentioned in the Gladys episode. A banner for Heaven's Converts, who have been mentioned a couple of times, reads, We are left in purgatory. There's also a sign that reads World Health Organization did it and another sign advertising PopeLives.com that claims the Pope is hiding in a basement in Sicily. The first conference Nora attends is The Prophet's Dilemma, a new coping mechanism which foreshadows events in the following episode and throughout the rest of the series. Another conference listed is the prenatal departures, which you should keep in mind for later in season one. Bum, bum, bum. There's a bearded man who was seen throughout the episode and uh, this uh, guy happily greets Nora on the street after Wayne has presumably removed his pain. This is the same man who beat Matt up in his church at the start of Two Boats and a Helicopter. 
Tom Perotta has said that the scene between Nora and Holy Wayne in this episode is his favourite scene of the entire series. Um, I'm guessing the entire series, maybe season one, maybe, maybe the whole series, like maybe all three series. I think season one. The teacher Nora's husband had the affair with is called Kylie. Uh, She's in the book. She has the same boyishly short hair, but doesn't have the sleeve tattoo described in the novel. Nora watching her at work is only for the TV series. In the book, Nora constantly watches SpongeBob SquarePants because it was her boy's favourite show. In the TV show, the rituals are keeping the house stocked with cereal and leaving the children's unfinished puzzle, drawing easel and music book untouched. In the novel, Nora rides her bike for miles daily, much different to the show's invention of being shot by a sex worker. Nora and Kevin didn't get their divorces in the book. Nora does ask Kevin to go to Miami, but it is by phone. He immediately agrees to go with it. The verse cited on a protester's sign, Matthew 2440, is quoted by Matt in the novel when he insists the departure had to be the rapture. Insurance companies refusing to pay out on departed family members' claims is a detail from the book. The Wayne and Nora scene is similar to the book, although he doesn't tell her uh, that he doesn't give a shit about her. His psychoanalysis of Nora isn't part of his standard ritual in the book and implies in the series that his powers are a psychological manipulation that leads to a placebo effect. Wayne, for seeing his own death, is an invention of the show. That brings us to the end of our podcast. If you're enjoying the regular episodes or these focusing on the leftovers, please give us a top review on Apple Podcasts or recommend us to anyone you think might get something out of Big Squid. I'll be back next week with two more podcasts. Uh, This writing job has really kicked into gear and uh, I can't really talk about it uh, because, you know, you sign papers. Uh, So maybe the Leftovers edition might be a little late next week, but I'll give you a heads up as I attempt to keep the schedule on track. That's the goal. I need need to keep my shit going. You do do the stuff for the money and then all the stuff that you love, you got to keep that balance or you go insane. I have gone insane in the past and I refuse to have that happen again. I'm going to try and watch Falcon and the Winter Soldier over the weekend too. I think I'll be able to get to that. It'll probably only be half an hour and I'll be able to squeeze that into the next episode. I have a feeling the Zack Snyder Justice League film might come a little bit later. I am working long hours and I don't like... Look, we all have our thoughts on what it's going to be like, but I also have a feeling that I might enjoy it the same way I like Barry Manilow. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? So uh, that might come a little bit later. And also, when I do a podcast about it, I've got to do it with Ben, right? We're going to make our schedules line up for that. You want Ben on that podcast? Like, it's going to be hilarious. Um, Between us, I'm guessing the over-under of seven meltdowns while we talk about all four hours of Justice League, right? Four hours. Jesus, shit. Anyway. I'm loving these Leftovers uh, podcasts. I'm loving re-watching it and I'm loving your comments as well. So uh, remember, you can just drop me a line at uh, the Facebook page. But if you want to jump in on the private conversation page, please come and join us. Everyone there is fantastic. We've had lots of fun back and forth. And uh, I'm, I'm really curious to know where you're at with these episodes. Let's finish with a quote from the indomitable Carrie Coon. 
we haven't evolved a hero story that's female. We're always trying to fit women's stories into this male structure, which is this rising action, this powerful conflict, and this falling action. And I think a female hero story is not that. It's something else. Until then. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.